You know, the Vietnamese coffee, it's a different type of coffee bean. So most coffee is Arabica, but mm. this is a Robusta beans. So it's a different type of flavor. It's a lot more intense, which is probably why it's not as popular. Who branded Robusta? A hell of a name. <laughs> I don't know, but it is <laughs> That's Robusta. That's all-time great branding is like, I don't know, it's more robust. Let's call it Robusta. <laughs> And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by John. Hey, everybody. And Ariel. Hi. In a previous episode, we went to Bean Town. In this episode, we're talking bean juice. That's yeah. right, folks. <laughs> While these magic beans don't come with a goose or a golden egg, they do block sleep receptors for approximately five hours. It's coffee. I'm talking about coffee. Today, we're talking about three products that aim to bring coffee to your day in a whole new way. But before all that delicious goodness, the one thing more inevitable than taxes, ads. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you met at a networking event? HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. Well, in the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Also, you can scale support and drive revenue and retention. Visit HubSpot.com service so you can do more with your customers today. So first in the tank, we have Super Coffee. And Super Coffee comes to us from Jake, Jordan, and Jim. And they are asking for $500,000 for 4.5%, which shakes out to, we're just going to say $11 million. It's a lot of ones. And I am not caffeinated enough. So about $11 million. They want a crap ton of money. Yeah. They want so much they money for like no revenue and no profit. And the problem that they're trying to solve is ugh, pre-bottled coffee, trash. We need a healthy alternative with protein because athletes. <laughs> so essentially, they are college athletes, and they're looking for a healthy alternative to the things that you can pick up in the bookstore. And that has led to the new product, Super Coffee, which is a healthy alternative to boost energy. So essentially, it's like pre-brewed coffee that's bottled with also protein sort of fortifying it. So it's got the dual benefits of waking you up and also like getting you swole. <laughs> the original version was brewed in a dorm room, so keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. But they have since moved on and it now comes in vanilla bean, maple hazelnut, and dark mocha. Mm -hmm. So thinking about our product, our pitch, what are our initial thoughts? I hate the idea of flavored coffees. I like just a good, plain, black brewed coffee. That's how I like my coffee. It pains me to say it, but I think they're onto something. I was looking into coffee trends and coffee okay. data. So first of all, I mean, not surprising because this is a massive category, but there's an actual national coffee data trends report. It's like oh, the industry standard, okay. the NCDT. Look at you. Well, official now. <laughs> I got my hands on a copy of the NCDT, my friends. And let me tell you some <laughs> fascinating stats. But first of all, did you know that 60% of Americans had a coffee in the past day, which is more than any other beverage, including tap water? I did not. But you know, the water thing checks out to my daily yeah, habits. I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Who's not drinking water? What are you drinking? Coffee. I'm so afraid for you. <laughs> but the thing that really raised my attention was that there has been a huge growth in the coffee category from younger coffee drinkers, mm -hmm. 18 to 35. <laughs> and the growth in that category is not from drip coffee, 
it is from prepackaged coffee, single serve, in particular flavored cold. And that's kind of driving all the growth in the category right now. And so when I first saw this, I thought, blah, awful. <laughs> Coffee's already super. I don't need something called super coffee. Now I think they might actually be onto something for where all the growth in the category is. And so if they can get their valuation right, I might be very interested in this business. I think the most unbelievable thing you said in all of that is that you drink your coffee black, honestly. <laughs> How do you drink your coffee? What do you put in? I enjoy black coffee. It has to have creamer. It has to have some <laughs> sugar. If it is like slightly darker than milk, it's probably where I need to drink it. It's too bitter for me. <laughs> I'm at the Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru and I get an iced coffee. I'll get sugar and cream, Gotta do cream which is called sugar. a regular in Boston. You just order a regular. It's cream and sugar. But they put like, honestly, like eight or nine tablespoons of sugar in. It's amazing. There's a whole layer at the bottom. It's great. Rocket fuel. <laughs> okay. If that's your Dunkin' order, what's yours, Ariel? So my Dunkin' order that I had today was just an iced coffee with three pumps of vanilla and I just take it black usually. But if I'm in the mood for something extra special, I will go for like a java chip frappuccino or something a little bit coffee milkshake to go. Nice. I think you're right, John, because while I am personally not the buyer persona for something like this, you know, this beverage, Super Coffee, it's selling. Mm -hmm. They've been in business two years as of this episode, and they already have $600,000 in lifetime sales. Now, the one thing that kind of started to break apart, though, because I was like, wow, that's successful, is their year to date, as of the episode, it was February was $400,000, but they were projecting $2.5 by the end of the year. And it's like, maybe I just don't understand <laughs> unit economics, but there's something off with that. Yeah. You know, I think the founders were just very excited by the potential like distribution opportunities that they had. John, to your point, opening up like the coffee industry is huge. There's a lot of upside to make a lot of money there. There's not much competition within the package space. But I think what it comes down to is anytime that you're marketing something that's healthier or that has an added nutritional benefit, taste is imperative. And I feel like that was the area that they kind of missed the mark was around the taste. And I think the sharks kind of caught on to that too. The taste killer felt around the world and it was Stevia. It's got Stevia. Stevia's back, baby. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ruining pitches all day. <laughs> you think about organic foods like Boom Chicka Pop or Annie's or even like Health Aid, kombucha, like it's all good for you, but taste good too. That was the one area I would have liked to see them say, hey, for our valuation, you know, we're asking for this much money. We're going to use it for product innovation or making sure that we have a more expansive flavor profile as opposed yeah. to, hey, we want to use this for promotion and influence. Do you think that is 100% true that the flavor must be great? Or do you think people will trade flavor for health? Have you tried kombucha? Yeah, I love kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking about the 18 to 35 year old market, I think you do need to have like a lower barrier of entry when it comes to taste to get into this category. If I'm 22 years old and I have $5 for coffee, if I'm going to spend that much money, I want to make sure that the taste is there too. But I don't know, John, would you go for it? I just wondered a little bit, if you look at some of the things that have taken off in coffee, like bulletproof coffee became mm -hmm. a big trend. And that was for a slightly older demographic, I think. I'll never forget the first time I came across bulletproof coffee. I was going out to breakfast with a potential employer when I was on the job market and I sat down and this man was sitting across from me and he said, I hope you don't think this is weird. And then he picked up like a big pad of butter and he just dropped it in his coffee. And it was, oh. it threw me off so much for the whole interview. Like I like definitely <laughs> left. It was like, I'm not working for that yeah, person. And not. I'm not taking this job. Like definitely not. 
But I, at one point later, was like, oh, that's supposed to be like bulletproof coffee. That's supposed to be good. And I tried it. It tasted horrible, the butter and the coffee thing. But I was like, I guess people are maybe willing to trade that off, the flavor for performance enhancements, potentially. So I don't know. Maybe they get a little bit of wiggle room on that. I don't know. Was it like a Paula Dean amount of butter or was it like a little bit of butter that he was like scooping in? We were at a fancy restaurant. <laughs> it's a round disc of butter. And he scooped the whole disc right on in his hot coffee. And I like couldn't understand a single question he asked me. I couldn't understand a word he said after that. What is the functionality of the butter? Well, it's supposed to do things to enhance your mental performance oh, because the lipids, you get those lipids running through your dome. Apparently that's a performance enhancer. I tried it once and it tasted horrible. And I guess if this is the performance I'm stuck at the rest of my life, then that's just the way it is. <laughs> what I couldn't tap down on was like who this was for. Maybe it's just I'm not understanding like the entire demographic of pre-bottled coffee drinkers, but their distribution, I think, was actually even more confusing to me. They had mentioned that one of the reasons their valuation was so high was because they were going to be in Whole Foods and Wegmans and Wawa and mm -hmm. Target. But it seemed like their pricing structure, this was at the time retailing for $3.29. It was more towards the high end crowd. And while I could see something that expensive taking off at Whole Foods, where like the typical pre-bottled drink is like $4.99 to $7.99. So this is actually cheaper. I actually struggled to be like, who are you targeting at Target or Wegmans or Wawa? Like Wawa is a gas station. Yeah, it is a good question. And going through that retail distribution channel is actually going to hack into their margins even more. Mm -hmm. Like their gross margin is like only 43%, which includes no sales and marketing cost at that point. If they go all in on wholesale distribution, that's going to whack a ton more off the margin. And so they could be in a position where they're not going to have as much to spend in growing the brand, building the business. One of the things they'll have to do if they want to compete versus like a Starbucks who owns 90 something percent of that ready to drink category is they're going to have to spend on marketing to break through on that. I'm not sure they'll have the money to do it. You know, they were saying, hey, we're in all these stores, so our valuation should be high. And I kind of thought of it as the opposite, which is actually mm -hmm. it's going to eat more of your margin away, which means your actual valuation versus the revenue you get is probably even lower. We talk about, you know, proof of concept. So if they have been in stores, did they run it as a test? Did they pay like slotting fees? What kind of velocity or churn did they see based off of the shelf? Like would have loved to hear more information or data around why they're justifying that valuation instead of, hey, we just got distribution here. Because a lot of brands and businesses, when they do get into a lot of these stores, it's not hard to negotiate having a test sell-in period, especially if you're offering fees up front to get your product on the shelf. But really, it's what happens afterwards. Do you stay in distribution? Are you more of an evergreen item that's on shelf as opposed to a seasonal or what's new or a rotating yeah. category? My question for both of you, though, with Super Coffee, do we feel like this is more of a category innovator or a category disruptor? So when you think about like category innovation, right, it's usually when you are adding on or making something of like an iterative process is something that already exists. So you're really focusing on tweaking a current experience in the market or the offering that you have. Whereas when you think about category disruptors, that's when brands are significantly challenging more of like your current norms. So when you think about like the Netflixes of the world, the Facebooks, the metas, I feel like they were positioning themselves more as a disruptor when really they were more of an innovator in this instance. I don't know, Ariel. I would actually call them more of a category innovator. Mm. Like the mm -hmm. pre-bottled coffee industry exists. They are innovating within that and saying, actually, you don't want Starbucks because it's full of sugar and ours is not full of sugar. And so by that, I feel like they're trying to position themselves within an existing category of like ready to drink 
coffees, as opposed to saying, hey, we want to bring some new coffee delivery mechanism into the world or something like that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I might call them more of a category innovator myself, but I see what you're saying on that point. I think that besides the fact that there's protein, which Rohan, who was the guest shark, was like, it's not different enough to really like make it your main value add. I feel like they were like trying to be a disruptor and an innovator, Mm -hmm. and they were really just like another bottled coffee drink that tastes kind of bad. But I do think that where they were potentially disrupting is aiming for potentially a younger market because like their branding was really clean. I could see that definitely targeting the younger, like millennial, zillennial, Gen Z, where it's like, it's healthy and it's low-cal. <laughs> it seems like the real sticking point was not whether or not it was an innovator or a disruptor. It was the taste. And even Barbara was like, I am so in love with you all as entrepreneurs. I am so so in love with this idea of innovating the coffee space, but she was like, I'm scraping my tongue and trying to get <laughs> yes. this, this chalky taste out of my mouth. I keep drinking water and I keep tasting it. It sounded awful. So I do agree with you, Ariel. If you can't make it tasty, it's not going to succeed. No one's going to want to drink it, even if mm-hmm. it is beneficial. Yeah. So ultimately, Barbara went out. I'm out. And so did every other shark. Unfortunately, Super Coffee walked away with no deal. Not surprised. I think a lot of the sharks thought this could be a very successful company, and they just couldn't come to an agreement with the entrepreneurs about what a dollar invested into the company should be worth. Mm -hmm. The entrepreneurs were like, hey, you should value us very highly. The dollar you put into our company should be worth less because we're going to be huge. And an investor looks at it the exact opposite way, which is, no, I invest to help you get there. And therefore, I should benefit in the upside. And so it was kind of an interesting riff that broke out between the entrepreneurs and the investors there, where the investors are like, you can't just say your valuation is super high because you are going to grow revenue super fast in the future. You have a bunch of revenue. We apply a valuation technique against that and you're worth what you're worth. And even if we like give you a little bit of a bump because we think you're going to be more successful, it still doesn't justify saying like, hey, you should value us as that we have five or six million dollars in revenue, which they just don't. Well, bit of a company update, despite the fact that they had no deal. Currently, you can actually get Super Coffee in 40% of U.S. retailers, which makes them the third largest manufacturer of bottled coffee behind Dunkin' and Starbucks. What? So, yep, they are a massive coffee company now. They've had celebrity investments from Jennifer Lopez. In 2022, they announced that their new spokesperson was the one, the only Vanilla Ice for their Vanilla Ice Latte, which is hilarious. For 18 to 35-year-olds, though, do they know who Vanilla Ice is? It's retro. In 2022, their revenue came in at $124 million. So they are doing very well post-Shark Tank. That's awesome. Okay, well, I have a rapid fire pop quiz before we move on to the next segment because we all love coffee here. So answer the first thing that comes to mind. Which country is the world's largest coffee producer? Guatemala. Colombia? It is Brazil. Zero for one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which country consumes the most coffee? So the most coffee per person. A little population normalization here. So which country consumes the most coffee? It's going to surprise you. Spain. Mm. That's a good guess. France. Finland. Finland. Oh, the Finns. It's cold. It's very cold there. (laughs) That makes sense, I guess. They need to stay warm. 
Final question. Which country is the largest importer of coffee? United States. Canada. Has to be. It is the U.S. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you for doing that with me. Next in the tank, we have Brewmachen. And Brewmachen is the freshest coffee on the go. Mm -hmm. And it comes to us from founder Kiku and Ross Smith. Ross is a social media influencer while Kiku is the founder. Kiku and Ross are asking for $1 million for a 10% stake in their company, which is a $10 million valuation. And their product is Brewmachen. It is a single-serve portable brewer that makes a hot cup of coffee in just five minutes, so no more waiting through drive throughs It looks like, you know, in their demo video that it's plugged into like a cigarette jack, but I'm sure it comes with many different plugs. <laughs> Another value add is that their single-serve coffee pods are biodegradable, so unlike other popular options, in 180 days, these little cups will go away because they're made of sugarcane and tree fibers. So thinking about our product and thinking about our pitch, initial thoughts of Brewmachen. It's essentially a single serve Keurig on the go. Yes. I was very surprised at the pitch. At the beginning, when Ross kind of pops out of the paper coffee cups, I was like, was he waiting there for an hour to just kind of pop out and be like, this is me. This is my personality. Commitment. Like, I think it started off fun. It started off very playful, very engaging. But then I just felt like the pitch started going a little bit downhill as the sharks were asking a little bit more questions. Found myself a little confused between Ross versus Kiku in terms of who was answering questions, what the influencer's involvement was. Why was Ross there? He runs marketing. Mm. Hashtag (laughs) marketing, baby. Let's unpack that response, Ariel. Why is a social media influencer not the same as marketing department? Because there's so much more to marketing than just social media and just influencing. Just because you have a wide audience of followers doesn't necessarily make you a marketer. Same way as just because you have a Twitter doesn't mean you know how to effectively run a Twitter account. I stand by that. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk about the trend and how to think about influencers being part of brands and launching products because it is a very popular trend right now. You see a Mm -hmm. lot of it and there have been huge hits and huge misses in that space. Right. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having, you know, an influencer to hype up a new product that you have going out into the market. But what I wish they would have won over is specifically, this is who our audience is. Here's how Ross effectively reaches this audience. I really wish that they drove a little deeper into the value that influencers have played to date for Brumachen. Yeah. The inclusion of this particular influencer seemed totally random. Yes. If you were trying to figure out like who are the ideal influencers for the Brumachen, you would never select this guy who does videos with his grandma. Right. He would partner up with influencers who are out in nature, who are out mm-hmm. car camping, doing a whole bunch of things like that where like you can't get access to a coffee maker. Just because someone has an audience doesn't mean that they can successfully launch a brand and get their market to buy it. I was thinking about like some of the biggest hits and the biggest misses. You look at like a Mr. Beast Mm -hmm. or you look at like Kylie Jenner, like both of them have managed to turn their influence online into massive businesses for them. Mm -hmm. But then you see Beyonce launched Ivy Park, which is like an athleisure line with Adidas, and it did not work. People love influencers because those influencers have some set of beliefs They have some like shared way of life and people want to be part of that. There's a great book that actually just came out called For the Culture 
by Dr. Marcus Collins. He talks all about the power of culture in driving brand purpose. And this just felt so relevant to it. Because if you look at a Mr. Beast or a Kylie Jenner, the things that they're launching are like core to what their beliefs are. And people want to buy those brands because they want to align with those beliefs. This brand is a part of me. And if you participate with the brand, you will be a part of the things that I believe in. I feel like this social influencer kept going back to, I just got a hundred million impressions last week alone. (laughs) And it felt very like vanity metrics. Ariel, help me unpack that. Let's talk about vanity metrics. Vanity metrics are essentially metrics that you have that aren't necessarily indicative of your strategy and don't really tie into what the bottom line is from a performance perspective. So more often than not, vanity metrics is utilized within organic social media. What I think he was trying to get at was, look at how wide my reach is. Look at how big my audience is that I amassed. But when you really kind of break it down, 100 million impressions isn't necessarily a lot if you're leveraging paid spend behind those. There's a lot of hacks that you can do to maximize your reach or ensure that folks are watching your video views. We're really on social it is kind of like pay to play. So what I would have loved to kind of see him go into is, hey, I have my audience here. I have an ambassador code that I utilize and I had X amount of customers that actually converted to this or I actually drove this action or this result. Whereas 100 million impressions, it's like, okay, what does that actually do to your business? It doesn't really tell me anything. So that's just one of the challenges with influencers and social media is always trying to find what is that tangible action or insight that you drove from all these efforts at the end of the day? Because investors aren't going to care about your reach. Mark Cuban probably has 500 million impressions on like the daily. Yeah. Just because people are watching your cat videos doesn't mean they're buying your kitty litter. Exactly. I think that they miss the mark, not only in terms of like where they're marketing, but also who they're marketing to, right? The big thing that the sharks were really concerned about is there's a lot of moving pieces, but I was thinking about who this actually solves for. You know who this solves for that is like, they are not talking about is truck drivers because truck drivers cannot go into a drive-through. They need to stay mentally alert at all times. There's a huge population of truck drivers and they could definitely make this their go-to coffee maker because they have the time to kind of pull over and start their coffee brew. This is the perfect market for them. And they just completely forgotten. I think they could have had something big here. And I just would have loved to see some more persona research because I do think things like this could be really helpful, but it's for very specific markets. And tell you what, I once took a road trip with my uncle who's a truck driver, and this would have been perfect at the time. It's also really time costly for these folks to get off the road. Jory, did you get in the cab? Did you like road trip in the cab? (laughs) Oh, yeah, for a week. Oh, absolutely. Jory. But, you know, it seems that Brumachin was struggling with targeting a little bit because once we start to dig past the hundred million impressions, mm-hmm. you know, they've only sold 600 units all via their Kickstarter. So they have $42,000 of Kickstarter lifetime sales. So their valuation, remember, was $10 million. And it's mm-hmm. entirely based on Ross's social capital, which, again, we just mm-hmm. kind of discussed doesn't necessarily align with their market. So a lot of the Sharks' responses were very much like, the company hasn't done anything to really deserve this valuation. And I think it was interesting because even Kevin was like, you're going to walk away with nothing because you're being too greedy with this. And I think honestly, even though some of the Sharks were concerned with how complicated the device was, it was really just their like valuation and Ross being Mm -hmm. like, I'm worth 10 million that made the Sharks really hesitant to invest. Yep. They've 
sold $42,000 worth of coffee makers, and they wanted a $10 million valuation on like a 70% gross margin. That is a leap too far. So ultimately, the Brumachen got no offers. Womp womp. And they did walk away kind of a little miffed, a little miffed about it. I think if you watch the founder and Ross's, the, the social influencer's face, I think they were actually pretty shocked that the sharks were so no-go about it. Honestly, and I'm just going to come out there and say it, if Ross wasn't part of the pitch, he probably would have walked away with something. I think Ross's conflated ego of 100 million impressions and I'm worth this. Not so good. It just didn't hit well for our sharks there. Made 100 million bad impressions on you, Ariel? Yes, 100 million bad impressions. And the sharks. <laughs> so ultimately, I have to ask, do you think that Brumach is still a company? No. I could see it being a company if the founder renamed it and maybe found a different influencer partner. <laughs> and made it yeah. an entirely different product <laughs> and got a new marketing team and changed yeah. basically everything. Okay, well... <laughs> So information is thin about Brumachen. So backers from their Kickstarter campaign have either not received their product or those that have received it have only negative things to say. It's mm -hmm. really difficult to find out what people really think. And I think they had mentioned in the pitch that some units or all units had been sent out, but it was kind of hard to verify that. So the product itself is so bad, the backers actually reported them to Kickstarter, Ooh. and it's got a notorious slew of bad complaints against Brumachen, like on Kickstarter. The thing is, though, despite all that, the company still exists and you can find them online, but that's the only place that you can really hmm. buy it. It's still a company, but TBD on like actual numbers because, yeah, couldn't find them. Who knew? Hmm. Exactly. Meh, it's fine. All right. You thought I was done. Another pop quiz for coffee. I'm going to need another sip of coffee here. <laughs> this is the most jittery I've ever been on a podcast episode. I hope I'm holding it together. All right. So which coffee chain is the largest? Starbucks, Dunkin' or Costa? Largest in the U.S. or largest like globally? Globally. Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah, it is. It is Starbucks. They're so big. Yeah. They are huge. What percentage of Americans drink coffee every day, of which we are part of that percentage as we sip our coffee? 80%. 60%, according to the <gasps> NDCTT. Yes, I forgot. John has the stats on hand. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, next and last in the tank, we have Copper Cow Coffee. And this comes to us from Debbie. And she is asking for $600,000 for 4% in her company, which is a $15 million valuation. Copper Cow Coffee is a premium Vietnamese coffee paired with sweetened condensed milk. So essentially, this is a product that is trying to give you that coffee shop experience all at home. So it's a single-use pour-over in a biodegradable cone that use filters that are based on like a Japanese style of coffee to make it easier to do this if you don't have like the conical pour-over machine in your home. And the company boasts that it partners with the best farms in Vietnam to make sure that you're getting that premium grade Vietnamese coffee right in your home. And I have a spoiler because I 
boxer. <gasps> oh. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And I have a cup of it. Jory. Right here. Wow. And I'm going to try it live on the pod. And it is good. Good? It is a good cup of joe. It's actually really good. I got the salted caramel kind. Mm. It's good. It's sweet. You know, the Vietnamese coffee, it's a different type of coffee bean. So most coffee is Arabica, but mm. this is a Robusta beans. So it's a different type of flavor. It's a lot more intense, which is probably why it's not as popular. Who branded Robusta? A hell of a name. <laughs> I don't know, but it is <laughs> That's Robusta. That's all-time great branding is like, I don't know, it's more robust. Let's call it Robusta. <laughs> I would recommend the salted caramel copper cow coffee. Thinking about our pitch, though, and not how I just drank it, thoughts of copper cow coffee? I think she nailed it. The coffee shop experience at home. It's simple. It's straightforward. My only gripe with it is actually the packaging. Really? Yeah. It just seems very bland and basic. It doesn't really talk anything about what the value adds are from like a recyclable perspective. In the background of her pitch, she had this beautiful, just clean, bright colored background and a simple cup of coffee. And I was like, this would be beautiful to like mm -hmm. translate onto the packaging or within some of the overall brand architecture that she's building out for this. I just felt like there was such a huge opportunity there to further develop that brand feel and style and tonality mm. a bit more that I would love to see. So I will say, though, I kind of disagree with you, Ariel, oh. because oh. I actually have tried this before. This is not my oh. first time trying Copper Cow Coffee. And I am a bit of a coffee enthusiast. I will try anything. I have five different coffee machines in my house. I have two coffee subscriptions and I'm a consistent buyer of coffee, right? So you come to my house, it is a coffee experience because you can get anything. Anyway, it was actually the packaging that made me buy it because I was like, it's so fun. It's got metallic cows on it. It's Vietnamese coffee, which is also really hard to find. I do think that actually maybe that's what is the value add. It doesn't matter what the packaging looked like. It was, it's so hard to find this not hmm. at a coffee shop. And so it could be in a white box that just said Vietnamese pour over and I probably would have bought it. And the fact that you get single serve condensed milk because you buy condensed milk, it's in a can, right? And you open it once for one thing of coffee. Mm -hmm. No way. Single serve condensed milk creamer. Nowhere can you find that besides this. So I don't know if the, the packaging is such a detriment if people are looking for Vietnamese coffee. My problem with that, Jory, is you have to pick it up and read it to see that. Like, it's not clearly upfront. This is Vietnamese coffee. This is the condensed milk. If it's like, like on these the are shelf. all the steps we're reducing mm -hmm. in that process for you reducing the friction so you can have this at home. She's sold a lot of this. I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. She's on to something. I think she's in total sold like $4 million worth of pour over coffee. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pour over coffee to sell. This isn't a huge price point item. She's selling it for like 15 bucks for five servings. People mm -hmm. clearly like this. Would love to know what the repeat purchase rates are. Mm -hmm. You know, as like the marketer, like the, you know, person valuing the business. Like that's actually the thing you want to know is are people purchasing this again and again and again. But um She's got 70% gross margins. She's increasing revenue mm -hmm. every year. She's on track to basically do a couple million dollars of revenue this year. So she's got money to spend. She's got momentum with her business. She's got product market fit. You know, I think basically the decision to invest here or not largely just comes down to like valuation and like, can you get a good deal to get in on this? The fact that 80% of her sales came from online, which yes, she could have talked more to like, what is the average churn or repeat buyers that we typically see? I think it's just yeah. huge to 
It's yeah, unbelievable. To be mm-hmm. able to say, hey, I'm specifically going to go online to purchase this product and go out of the way to do that really shows me that she's positioned herself within buyers' minds of being this beloved brand. I mean, doing a million and a half dollars of coffee sales online, mm-hmm. that's a lot of online coffee sales. People have to really think this is a good product. Right. Well, I did think this through, though. And I was like, well, what year did this episode come out? 2021. Oh, okay. So this mm. is after mm-hmm. after everything was mostly locked down. You couldn't go really to a coffee shop. So the fact that she's still seeing that success after the pandemic is a little more reassuring that it's not necessarily a temporary boost in like e-commerce sales. Yeah. Maybe it was more of a brand awareness was really helped by the pandemic. And now people know they can buy this online because they couldn't go to the coffee yeah. shop. Maybe, but mathematically, this was like a little confusing for me. It's not just that she was doing sales really consistently, but it seems like she was continuously like raising money and Mm -hmm. losing money and raising money and losing money. And Rob mentioned that she kept growing in plateaus. Could you help me unpack that? I mean, it seemed to me as though she would raise a bunch of money and grow a bunch and then kind of flatline Mm -hmm. and then raise a bunch more and grow some more. The thing that I don't understand is like what she was losing the money on Mm -hmm. because her gross margin was really high. Was she losing it on COGS and like what it cost to actually buy the product and get it all set up? Was she losing it on marketing? Was Mm -hmm. it actually like just acquisition costs are super high to get that $2 million or whatever? A bit of a holy war broke out on the show between like, is it okay for an entrepreneur to lose money Mm -hmm. or not? to grow the business. And Damon was like, no, like you can't lose money in a business like this. And Robert was like, you definitely can lose money. I've invested in all sorts of companies that lose money. I feel like tech has established this situation where it is okay to lose a lot of money. And the reason it's okay for tech in theory to lose a lot of money in the early days of the company is that the marginal cost for them of serving more people is zero when you build tech, when you build software. And so, okay, cool. You have to do these large expenses, but your like ongoing cost of serving people is almost zero. And so, you know, you can pay that back over time. If she's got a situation with her business where she is just straight up losing money because she can't acquire customers profitably or because she's had to invest in a whole bunch of things that are not going to pay themselves back well, it seems pretty risky to me. So because Lori, I think, was definitely attuned with you, Ariel, where it's like the packaging is confusing. Lori mentioned that when she saw it, she thought the actual cone of pour over coffee would be included, like the single serve coffee cup. The valuation was really confusing and the Sharks didn't really understand the demand. Mm -hmm. Despite that, though, Rob did offer $600,000 for 8%, double the equity that initially the founder was asking for. But ultimately, the founder did make a deal with Robert. So sealed the deal for $600,000 for 8%. He made things move in the right direction. So let's talk about that movement, because actually... (laughs) The deal with Robert did fall through (laughs) post Shark Tank, Um. but that's okay because Copper Cow Coffee could not be tipped. (laughs) This company actually went nationwide in Whole Foods, Walmart, and Sprouts. And since the tank, they have launched 13 new products that includes coffee flavors like salted caramel, creamers, and bundles of bestsellers. As of February 2023, their annual revenue is... $3 million. So that's really interesting because we actually see a drop in revenue. So they're very much still in business. (laughs) Drink more coffee and think about it. So we have three coffeepreneurs. We have Super Coffee, we have Brewmockin, and we have Copper Cow Coffee. 
Which one gets your golden bite? Should we do the golden bean today? Oh, yeah. Golden bean. <gasps> yes. The golden bean yes. juice. Golden bean. I'm squeezing my <laughs> beans into a bean juice for super coffee. I don't know. I think it's really cool when young entrepreneurs stumble into a market trend that is in their favor and deliver a product against it. I hope they cleaned up their flavor. I should get one and try it. Seems like it's available everywhere. For me, I think I'm going to do... Copper cow <laughs> coffee, just because I really like the idea of having more of a, you know, niche kind of coffee at home and the fact that she did so well sales wise. I have to agree, but I'm totally biased because I'm mm. drinking a copper cow coffee. You have to choose that. Yeah. Can you imagine if I was like sipping my copper cow and I was like brumachin? <laughs> like, brumachin. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like sold on this is like a trucker tool set that needs to be unlocked. Anywho. AeroPress, also great. Complicated coffee makers, love them. But yes, Copper Cow Coffee, that gets my golden bite. (laughs) That does it for us this week. I want to thank our Oz behind the curtain, Matthew Brown. Additional support for the show comes from Melanie Romero and Robert Hartwig. And thanks to the HubSpot Podcast Network for keeping the mics on. Subscribe to the show. Tell your family, your friends, That guy you walked by on the street the other day? No, not the one with the cut-off sleeve t-shirt. Ugh, pass on that first interaction. The other one, the one with the dog. Ugh, a dog. Okay, that's it for me. See you next week for another bite. Oh, and you're my favorite. Don't forget that.